Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys, welcome back to the Equip You Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series talking about biblical sexuality. Today, we're going to talk about transgenderism as a worldview and responding to that worldview with the Word of God. And so uh, today's episode is going to have lots of clips and evidence. Um, we're going to, the the clips you'll be able to see on the video, and you'll be able to hear in your earbuds. Um, I am also going to have some uh, visuals, some graphics for you. Uh, so if you want to see those, I want to encourage you uh, to watch the video episode of this at either Sermon Audio or at uh, YouTube. All right, guys, so let's get into the, the show. The first clip that I have from you, it, it comes from an interview that Laura Ingram did with a man named Chris Rufo, May 19, 2023. By the way, all rights to this clip belong to Fox News. I'm going to play that clip, but before I do, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. Uh, this story comes to us from a Texas Children's Hospital. They vowed that uh, transgender interventions would end, and what Chris Rufo has uncovered is shocking. Uh, it, it uncovers uh, a lot of uh, issues at the hospital with them promoting gender-affirming care and actually practicing that with Baylor Hospital, um, where they uh, are working in conjunction with, they hosted a pediatric grand rounds presentation titled Medical and Psychological Care of Gender Diverse Youth, describing the process of sex change interventions, puberty blockers to cross-sex hormones and genital surgeries. Um, and they encouraged Texas Children's Hospital, Baylor School of Medicine, encourage doctors to begin treating uh, kids with puberty blockers and more. And so um, I'm only going to play a short clip from the interview. I want to highlight not that the story is important, but what I, what I want you to hear from uh, Chris is he's going to tell you that this is a religion and that this is a matter of worship. And so I want you to hear him say this. And remember, these clips are not coming from people inside the church. These are coming from people outside the church in the public square. They are talking about these things in this way. It is important to note this and then to talk about it. Uh, so here's the first clip from uh, the interview between Laura Ingram and Chris Rufo. And again, uh, I do not have rights to this. These clips do belong to Fox News. It's very scary. Uh, you know, as a parent, I would be horrified if my uh, pediatrician was talking behind closed doors about my kids' sexuality, encouraging them to have a new name, new pronouns, to get on puberty blockers and hormones. I mean, 
These are ideological fanatics. And my sources inside Texas Children's say uh, that the doctors who are performing these procedures are absolutely committed to this ideology. They want to push as many kids through as possible. Uh, For them, it's almost like a religious commitment. Uh, This is the sacrifice that they're offering, and it's all in pursuit of some kind of vague, medically uh, mediated social justice mission. So you will have heard that in your earbuds. You'll have seen that in the video. And what Chris is saying is, is that this is a matter of worship. He's saying that what they're promoting, it goes beyond just, you know, wanting to see children get help or anything. Uh, It's a matter of, as he said, a matter of offering our children on the altar of a sacrifice. You know, in a in a biblical worldview, children are are a blessing from the Lord. That God assigns our specific gender at birth. We we see this in the garden. Adam Adam was made as a man, and then what happened? Adam was put to sleep, and then now we have. Uh, from Adam's rib, we we got Eve. And so God joined them together and he saw that it was good. Genesis uh, 1 and Genesis 2 tell us this. And they were joined as one flesh. Thus, the institution of marriage was made not just for the procreation of children, but also for, uh, as Ephesians 5 says, so that it might provide a picture a representation of the gospel itself. And here what we have is the total perversion of the very purpose that God made in and established for the institution of marriage. God assigns our gender at birth. So in Psalm 139, we see very clearly that God knitted us together in our mother's womb. And so Chris is absolutely right. But this is only the start of this because uh, on uh, March 28, 2023, Tucker Carlson on his show, he had a segment titled The Transgender Movement is Targeting Christians. And on this show, uh, I need to tell you, he is responding. He's responding to what's not being said about the shooting at Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee. But what he says is, is so interesting to me when when I when I saw this. Uh, which I did when it first aired, I I was floored that here we have somebody on national television and they are showing us, telling us, this is a worldview. And behind the worldview is a theology. And this theology opposes the word of God. I mean, he says it in his own words. So here is that clip. The trans movement is the mirror image of Christianity and therefore its natural enemy. In Christianity, the price of admission is admitting that you're not God. Christians openly concede that they have no real power over anything and for that matter, very little personal virtue. They will tell you to your face that they are sinful and helpless and basically absurd. They're not embarrassed about any of this. They brag about it. That saved a wretch like me goes the most famous Christian hymn ever written in English. The trans movement takes the opposite view. Trans ideology claims dominion over nature itself. We can change the identity we were born with, they will tell you with wild-eyed certainty. 
Christians can never agree with this statement because these are powers they believe God alone possesses. That unwillingness to agree, that failure to acknowledge a trans person's dominion over nature, incites and enrages some in the trans community. People who believe they're God can't stand to be reminded that they're not. So Christianity and transgender orthodoxy are wholly incompatible theologies. They can never be reconciled. They are on a collision course with each other. I just want to say, first off, that Tucker is right on. Everyone is a theologian. The question R.C. Sproul once said is whether you're a good theologian or a bad theologian. And in that case, uh, the ideology that trans transgenderism is promoting, it's it's bad theology because it diminishes the image of God in man. It undermines the very nature of sin, salvation, and the help those who are gender confused could alone find in the word of God that would point them from scripture to Jesus. In fact, it's not even enough to state this. There's an example that demonstrates this from a Methodist pastor uh, named Isaac Simmons. In fact, the American Specter, May 31st, 2023, in an article titled, The Methodist Church's First Drag Queen Pastor. God's nothing. It's based on Isaac Simmons. Isaac Simmons, in his poem, says, God is nothing. The self-described drag evangelist repeats throughout the poem, adding, the Bible is nothing. Religion is nothing. In the end, he concludes, God and the Bible are nothing unless we wield it into something. He says that the poem is directed, and he writes the poem, is directed at those who are actively and passively causing harm against the LGBTQI2S plus community due to their understanding of scripture. So as Tucker said, we're seeing people advocate theology. The, the question that we considered in the previous episode on the authority of scripture is that our theology is to be grounded in the word of God. And so we need to ask the question, is the theology advocated by the transgender community, but is the theology being preached by Simmons and others like him? And there are so many examples to include here. It would be overwhelming. But the question is this, is the theology, is the theology being advocated by the transgender community? Is it grounded in the authority of the word of God or does it minimize the word of God? According to Simmons and others who hold this transgender ideology, they think that the Bible is nothing and religion is nothing. And because of how Christians use the Bible, Simmons directs this poem at those who actively and passively cause harm against the LGBTQIS plus community due to their understanding of scripture. But let's ask the question. Here is a supposed pastor. That that's as generous as I can say it. Here's a supposed pastor preaching a, a supposed sermon. It's not a sermon. I will never call that a sermon. Okay, I just won't. But here is a supposed professing Christian pastor preaching. Okay, so let's hold him to that standard. Is what Simmons said, is it truth? Does it derive from God's word? In Ephesians 4.15, we're supposed to speak the truth in love. 
In Jude 3, we're told to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Is what Simmons doing truthful? Is what he's saying truthful? Is it spoken in love? Is he contending for the truth of that's revealed in the word of God? And the other questions that we need to ask is speaking the truth in love from the mouth of the creator, a personal attack as Simmons wants us to believe. Is speaking what God has said about how he made man first and then uh, from Adam's rib made Eve, is that unloving? Or is it not what God said? And here's another question. How else can we know God other than as he's revealed in the word of God? We have nothing else to say other than what's in the word of God. Commenting on Simmons, Dr. Albert Muller in an article titled Doctrinal Annihilation, Theologian Blasts Methodist, Methodist Church for Pushing Drag Queen Pastor Claims Two Religions Forming Over LGBTQ Issues at the Daily Wire. He says the United Methodist Church's decision to make Simmons a certified candidate for ordination was an intentional refutation and revolt against the very order of creation that God has given us, and a direct violation of the clear teaching of Scripture concerning the fact that those whom God has made as men should identify as men. Muller said this is open revolt, and of course, you're going to see a division between those who are openly, who are appalled by it, deeply troubled by it, deeply concerned by it, and opposed to it on the one hand, and those who celebrate it and say that it's arrived far too late on the other hand. Now, in an article uh, at at uh, at NPR, written September 25th, 2022, trans religious leaders say scripture should inspire inclusivist congregations. That's the article title. Part of the article states that Shannon T.L. Kearns is the first openly transgender man ordained in the old Catholic Church, a denomination, the article says, that split from Rome after the first Vatican Council in the 19th century. He's the founder, co-founder of QueerTheology.com and the author of In the Margins, A Transgendered Man's Journey with Scripture. He says that the, the world of gender in the Bible is much more complex than I was taught growing up as an evangelical, says Kearns, pointing to numerous stories of biblical figures transgressing transgender norms or gender norms. Uh, he says, we have women who are judges. We have men who spend their time in the kitchen. There are enochs, which were considered this kind of other third gender. The central claim that Kearns wants to make, and I want to focus on here, is he says, I think that we all read ourselves into scripture. I think that the kicker is that folks from marginalized communities are being honest about the fact that's what they're doing. Now, as I read this, I, I, I cringe. I spent uh, my time in Bible college and seminary, um, as, as I, I think you guys know, I spent my time there studying how to, how to interpret the Bible rightly. And one of the things that he's talking about is called eisegesis. It, it's essentially reading yourself into the Bible. It's it's pushing yourself, not what the text says, but what you want the text to say at the forefront. And and this is how you're always going to get the wrong interpretation. But but as I've often said on this show, this also says something and reveals something 
about Kearns and this movement's view of the scriptures. We had, so Simmons says that he wrote that poem that we considered earlier. He wrote it directed at those who actively and passively cause harm against the LGBTQI uh, 2S community due to their understanding of scripture. That is a claim about interpretation. And then here we have Kearns suggesting that we all read ourselves into scripture. So what they're advocating for is eisegesis, reading ourselves into the Bible, making ourselves the the focus of what scripture says, or even making at worst, and we can say this charitably, at worst, we can say that what Kearns and what the transgender community wants is, is what I call theological relativism, where we just minimize relativism is the idea that it's my truth It's my opinion. It's my view. And you can't question that because it's how I see things. But here we can absolutely challenge Kearns. We can challenge Simmons. We can challenge the transgender community because here they are. They are advancing not just their ideology, not just their personal opinion, but they're saying this is how we view the Bible. I've said it before that you know, how we view the Bible, it's going to affect what we do with the Bible. And there is no better illustration of that idea than right here with the words out of Kern's own mouth that he thinks that all of us are reading into the the Bible, that all of us are guilty of, you know, uh, theological relativism, that there cannot be just one interpretation, uh, correct interpretation, when you consider the context and the history and coming to what what the text means. The text doesn't mean, in other words, what he's saying, what it means. Instead, it means what I think it means. It places the onus of the interpretation and um, not on what God has said, but on what I think. That's the opposite of what biblical hermeneutics does. Biblical hermeneutics is concerned with understanding the context, the the uh, the argument of the author, and then not just making up an interpretation, but considering the context, the flow of the book, the argument of the book, uh, what is the intended audience, and those kind of things. And then, and only then, can we begin to interpret the passage, understanding the given context of the passage under consideration. And only once we've done that, can we draw a parallel to our own day. But for men like for people like Kearns and others, they just think that what we're doing is it's just your thoughts. It's just your take. It's just your interpretation. Like, like somebody would give their opinion on a political matter and you're like, okay, so that's their take. But I, I disagree with that argument. This is the same thing. But here we have, here we have them arguing about things that are absolute truth. And this is where we need to understand something. We're living in a in a post-truth world. In fact, we're living in a world where really the, the meaning of truth and the definition of truth is really under assault. It's under assault because the idea of truth itself and can we even know it is under assault. So the very idea of knowledge is under assault. And, and we see that in the transgender movement, um, this idea that it's just your personal take. It's just your personal thing. Now, um, there's another poll uh, that I'd like to to draw into this discussion. It comes from the State of Theology, which we talked about last summer. Uh, I'm going to include a graphic of this. Uh, this comes from uh, Statement 29 from the State of Theology. It shows how those who strongly 
uh, agreed with the statement from 2016 to 2020 that gender ideology as a matter of choice rose from 54% to 67%. And the percentage of those who strongly agreed fell from 24% to 15%. Now, this this, uh, state of theology is Ligonier's biennial survey. It provides key findings on what Americans think about God, about truth, about the Bible, about ethical issues. It's conducted by LifeWay Research. It's it's a survey, uh, a national representative sample of U.S. adults. And the unbiblical concept of relative truth has influenced every sphere of life in the United States, including ethical issues such as sexuality and gender. And they continue to be at the forefront of the public debate. In 2020, 73% of U.S. evangelicals reject the argument of gender fluidity, while 22% believe that gender identity is a matter of choice. And so as the broader culture in the United States increasingly embraces, you know, relativistic uh, views, that is views where I'm at the center of human identity, the data from the State of Theology survey exposes the need for Christians to receive clear teaching on the image of God, on the creation ordinance of marriage, and the purposeful distinction between a man and a woman. Dr. Stephen Nichols, who we had had on this show, he's the chief academic officer of Ligonier Ministries and president of Reformed Bible College. He said children down to the earliest ages are now being told that they have autonomy to determine whether they are a boy, a girl, or neither. Not only does this threaten an entire generation with lifelong trauma, but but even more, ultimately, this message is one of treason against the supreme authority of God. Christians must listen and submit to God's steadfast word and all that it teaches. But the 2020 State of Theology survey, it suggests that many American evangelicals are instead listening to the changing voice of culture. And so they're hoping that this survey will help serve the Church of Jesus Christ in making disciples who know, who love, and who contend for the truth, especially in a culture that is confused about truth. That just shows the point that I just made about truth and how it's under attack. But back to the point of this episode. We've talked now about uh, Simmons, and we've talked about Kearns, and we've talked about biblical hermeneutics, and and you've heard from people out there who are who are speaking, who are seeing these issues and these ideas play out in real time and affect real children and people all over our country. And what we have to say here today, it then uh, this next part of this episode, I want to be clear, it, it is not a popular thing to say in our day. But I also want to make clear something. I don't, I don't say this because uh, I, I don't care and I don't long to see transgender people saved. Uh, if that was the case, uh, our next guest would not be coming on this show. Uh, This this woman was saved by the grace of God out of the transgender movement. But we have to understand something, that transgenderism is a different ideology. It is, as J. Gresham Machen said, a different religion. And if it's a different religion, it's offering a different God than the God of the Bible. And these people who are claiming to be transgender Christians, part of the progressive, really theological liberalism, but you might know it as progressive Christianity, they are offering these people a different religion and a different God. What they're doing is idolatry. And when we talk about idolatry, 
we need to understand that idolatry is serious business in the eyes of God because God demands absolute allegiance. There's no other God. So it's foolish to trust in deities, gods, false gods who cannot save. To refuse to worship the Lord God is idolatry, and idolatry is a grave sin condemned in the Bible. In Leviticus 19, 1 through 4, in Psalm 31, 6, in Psalm 96, 5, in Ezekiel 6, in 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 22, and in Revelation 21, 8. Throughout biblical history, the idolatry that most of the prophets spoke against was the serving of pagan deities, beings that people worship specifically as gods. Those who worship pagan gods build graven images of these false gods, and they constructed altars at high places, sites where they were worshipped within the land of Israel. Idolatry today exists within Hinduism, tribal religions, and where professing Christian churches gloss over people's animalistic and polytheistic traditions. It also exists in the transgender movement. The Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 95, defines idolatry as having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in the word. Idolatry can also be seen in many major monotheistic religions, such as Islam, whose practitioners, practitioners worship uh, a law of the Quran and modern Jews who worship a unitary deity defined more by rabbinical tradition than by the Old Testament. Both of these religions are guilty of idolatry because they do not worship the triune God of Scripture. Idolatrous attitudes and practices do not need to be religious in the sense of being directed towards a defined God or need to occur within an organized religious setting. Anything that we love more than the Lord himself is an idol. Jesus makes this point in Matthew 10, 37 through 39, when he rejects any who love their family members more than himself. In Philippians 3.19, Paul identifies some individuals in that congregation whose God was their belly, meaning their physical appetites were so consuming that Paul viewed them as worshiping their stomachs. Every fallen culture has idols, and so Christians must be sensitive to what the world is calling us to worship in the place of the true God. Neither sex, nor power, nor fame, nor anything else deserves the place of supremacy of God in our lives. Only the transcendent, identified as the Lord and the creator of all, deserves our ultimate worship. In John 5, 20, the apostle John says, the son of God has come, which refers to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. In the incarnation, the divine son has come into the world in human flesh. Only those with faith and assurance in the Lord Jesus can embrace the incarnation without reservation. And so John explains in 1 John 5, 20, that the Lord has given us understanding. John's phrasing is interesting, since the idea of salvation by right knowledge was essential to those countering the apostles' teaching. Knowledge of biblical Christianity is critical, for we cannot know, we cannot know God without a revelation from the Son. Therefore, knowledge is vital for salvation. And unlike the false teaching of John's opponents in 1 John, knowledge leading to salvation is knowledge that leads us to the incarnate Christ, a person. And such knowledge involves believing in facts and personal trust in him as personal Savior and Lord. John's point now becomes clear. Knowing him is true. God the Father is inseparable from being in union with God the Son, Jesus Christ. And so to know the biblical God and to have eternal life is to be in the Son, Jesus. Only those who belong to Jesus who are 
his disciples have everlasting salvation. You see, the Lord demands our allegiance, but he also expects people to keep uh, to his people to keep themselves from idols in 1 John 5, 21. And since there's only one true God, Christians must never set up anything else in his place. That's forbidden in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 3. And though it may not be the gods of wood or stone common in the Old Testament, Christians must be careful not to make their jobs, their money, their families, their reputation, or anything else the center of their affections. John Calvin is right when he says, The vivifying light of the gospel ought to scatter and dissipate not only the darkness, but also the mist from the mind of the godly. Idolatry is not a subject that we often talk about today. It's one that gets to the fallenness of man and our need for Christ alone. See, our idols, they reveal our need for Christ. Our lives are always before the face of the true God who sees and knows our thoughts and deeds. Idolatry helps reveals man's heart and what we value of supreme worth. The gospel provides the cure to man's idolatry, showing where we find our true identity and value apart from Christ alone, and how we can, as a people of God, rest in who we are now in him. The gospel highlights our need to expose our idols, and the Holy Spirit does this through the teaching of the word of God to convict, to comfort, and equip his people. In Exodus 3.14, God says, I am who I am. And this declaration is powerful because the Lord God was declaring who he is, his absolute essence. He's declaring, I am the only true God. And as we fast forward to the New Testament, the Lord Jesus says, I am seven times in John's gospel. In Leviticus 11, 44 through 46, we're taught that God is holy, meaning that he is set apart. In 1 Peter 1, 13 through 15, we're taught that as a result of God's holiness, he requires Christians to live holy lives. And so gaining a right understanding of the love of God requires a biblical understanding of the holiness of God. And so understanding God's holiness and his love is profound because if we get the holiness of God wrong, we diminish and we undermine the character of God. If we get the love of God wrong, then we will have a God who will crush humanity in judgment, not love us through Christ alone. In fact, throughout the book of 1 John, the apostle John roots the assurance of the Christian using the interplay between external evidence and the internal testimony of the grace of God. To abide in Christ as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit and work in the life of the Christian. The Holy Spirit assures the, that the people of God belong to Jesus but never apart from the outward evidence of faith. The presence of the Holy Spirit is discerned by the internal testimony and by the obedience to the commands of Jesus given through his apostles, as 1 John 4, 6 tells us. And some of the other commands of John include belief in Jesus, the Son of God, in 1 John 3, 21, in 1 John 4, 1 through 5, and love for one another as Christians, in 1 John 3, 23. And so love to John is a critical mark of a Christian who has genuine faith in Jesus. Those who have not been born of God do not know God, nor can they know the God of love, as 1 John 4, 8 tells us. Love is essential to the nature of God. Those who have become partakers of the new nature, as 2 Peter 1, 4 says, are the people of God. They alone increasingly reflect God's holy and loving character and love others. And so the transformed hearts of Christians respond to the call of God to love one another. 
John addresses those in First John who thought love made God too personal. And many today, following John's original audience, they believe that God is love, but they do not believe what the Bible says about the rest of God's character, including his holiness. In fact, such people even recoil at the idea that there's only one way to heaven, and that way is restricted by Christ only through faith in him. And so when Christians speak of the love of God, we're not minimizing the other characteristics of God. For example, the simplicity of God tells us that the love of God never operates apart from the holiness, mercy, omnipotence, justice, or any of the other divine attributes of God. It is loving to seek justice and demand holiness, but never to do so at the expense of the mercy of God. Christians need the help of God and the wisdom he alone provides to apply his love into every phase of our lives. And within God's perfect love is the reality that he chastised those whom he loves. Hebrews 12, 5 through 7 reminds us, You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as son. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and, son, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? See, Christians should both expect and even embrace the discipline that God gives them. The divine discipline of God is intended to help the people of God grow in a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Revelation 3.19 says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Throughout the book of Proverbs, Solomon speaks and writes about a father disciplining and correcting children out of love. To the biblical writers, rejecting correction from the Lord, God is to walk away from walk in the way of foolishness and wickedness. And so according to the biblical writers, walking in the light is to accept correction, to repent, and to become wise. Such Christians understand that the loving embrace of God involves the guiding rod and the staff wielded by the chief shepherd, Jesus. In Exodus 34, 14, we find the command, Worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. John Frame in his systematic theology explains God's jealousy is not inconsistent with his love or with his holiness. On the contrary, his jealousy is part of his love. In Romans 8, 31 through 39, Paul writes about the love of God and how down to the nanosecond, the Christian is held secure in the sovereign hands of God. And so only those who are truly Christ will be held until the end, for they have true faith in the Lord. Times of doubt may come, the storms of life may assail them, but if we belong to Christ, we are held by him and we will belong to him always. Such a biblical truth should cause Christians to draw near humbly to the throne of grace, to know and grow in the love of God. Well, and what back to the transgender movement now that we've talked about idolatry and what it is and why it's important to understand. We see that the transgender debate is all encompassing in our day. Issues such as education, law, government, entertainment. They all fall in the crosshairs of the transgender debate. And our culture is moving with such speed that working out how to respond to this seems overwhelming. In fact, within a week or two weeks of this episode airing, it might even just seem uh, outdated. But you know what? That's why we're talking about the word of God, because the word of God is always relevant. And scripture tells us how we're to respond, how we're to think about these things. And so that's why we're talking about scripture, because we need to understand what scripture says about these things. 
Those clips, they provide evidence. They show, yes, this is where what our world is saying. This is what those who even claim to be within the church are saying, and yet they oppose the biblical worldview. Now, here's five essential things for Christians to keep in mind as we think and even speak about transgenderism. Disagreeing with transgenderism does not deny the pain of gender dysphoria. There's a, a difference between the political aspects of the culture war surrounding transgenderism and the reality that there are precious persons who have gender uh, genuine struggles with gender dysphoria, a condition where a person senses that their gender identity, how they feel about being a male or a female, might not align with their biological sex and experience emotional distress as a result. And while we resist the attempt to uh, being made at cultural and legal level to view gender as a matter of choice, we need to recognize that caught up in all of this are deeply hurting people. Uh, those who experience gender dysphoria are not necessarily trying to win a cultural war. They need to know that even while we may not agree with them, Christians love them and we are there for them. We're ready to listen to them and to seek to understand the pain that they're facing and deeply desire what is best for them. Compassion and dignity for dysphoric individuals is not in tension with disagreeing with transgenderism as a social movement. Second, a man cannot become a woman and a woman cannot become a man. The biggest claim of the transgender movement is that a man who thinks he's a woman can really be a woman and so on and so forth. In fact, you see this from preferred pronouns, sex reassignment surgeries, demands to use the restroom, a perceived rather than given genders. The problem is, is that this is a philosophical claim that is not true. It can never be true in any way or form, or form. A man's chromosomes cannot be engineered into female chromosomes. Altering one's appearance cosmetically or surgery cannot change the under, underlying reality of a person's biological makeup. The psychology of a mind cannot override the facts of a person's biological markers. The, per the transgender revolution demands that we believe falsehood about human nature. And truth and falsehood have never been a matter of majority vote because we know there is a creator who has the authority to decide and to state what is right and what is wrong. Third, the Bible supplies the framework for understanding the transgender revolution. A Christian worldview is informed by the Bible can fully explain why people experience feelings of gender dysphoria. The Christian worldview is one that acknowledges that creation has been disrupted and is not the way that it once was, nor how it will eventually be in the new creation, as Genesis 3, Romans 8, and Revelation 21 tell us. No part of our existence in the universe has been left un undisturbed by sin's effects. This means that you know the sinfulness of the creation reaches into every corner of our lives, even our minds and our hearts. And to the same degree, every human is made in God's image. And to differing degrees and in many different ways, every human struggles with the, bro with the sinfulness of our bodies, our desires, our thoughts. And to that, even that same degree, every human can find their true identity by recognizing that the God who made them has also saved them and will one day restore them. And so... In this created but sinful world, we understand that not all identities or feelings are to be accepted or even fostered because we're guided by a mixture of good and sinful desires. The, the great Bible story of the creation, fall, and redemption, it tells us we should not be shocked that people experience desires that are not, in fact, uh, bringing about the wholeness they're seeking. 
and equally that we can never be self-righteous about how, how others struggle in the, or sin. Fourth, the transgender debate questions whether men and women, moms and dads are real. If being a man or a woman is determined by someone's mind or will, it means that there's no such thing as true maleness or femaleness. Both become just a construct based on cultural stereotypes. We would be unable to tell a young boy he's really a young boy. We would be unable to tell a young girl that her father's unique response to her, her as a father is anything objective or real. Erasing the biological significance of our maleness and femaleness, it destroys the script that God knit into human ex existence for how the sexes interact with one another and how children know the difference between a mother and a father. Fifth, Christians need to know Christians need both conviction and compassion in the transgender debate. The transgender debate is ripe with controversy. Holding a biblical conviction in this debate means that individuals will find themselves in disagreement with friends, with families, with coworkers, and that however we express ourselves, we're going to be accused of as haters, as bigots, and worse. And at a time like this, Christians need the courage to defend a true vision for human flourishing. Based on the biblical understanding of being made in the image of God, we must avoid trite explanations or even knee-jerk reactions. We must continue to say that since God made us, he gets the ultimate say in who we are. We must put steel in our spine. But all the conviction in the world won't matter if we act or even speak without compassion. Jesus did not aim to win debates. He sought to love people with the truth. And so we must, as his followers, do the same. As we ground our conviction in God's unchanging, perfect word, we must speak with compassion in our hearts. Now, Genesis 1.27 says that God made them male and female. No matter how hard people may try, they cannot wish away this fundamental physical reality. And that is a good thing. In the 1940 film, Pinocchio, Jimmy Cricket sang those famous lyrics to a woeful little wooden boy who wanted to become something different. The tale is touching. In our day, though, people no longer apply such inspirational messages in traditional ways. Anything your heart desires has been hijacked. In ways that Walt Disney could not even imagine, such slogans now inspire people to surgically remake themselves. Witness the spread of the transgender identity in which men seek to become women and women seek to become men. And, you know, in 2023, this is no extraordinary occurrence. It is an increasing trend and a major worldview challenge as Christians. Well, the creators of Pinocchio, of course, did not have the transgender individuals in view when they made their famous movie. They simply wanted boys and girls to dream big. And as the West has lost its Judeo-Christian moral constraints and its traditional vision of biblical manhood and womanhood, we have embraced a radical individualism. This mindset created with Al Albert Muller has called a cultural shift. Radical individualism casts off all the moral restraints in order to maximize personal happiness. In Dr. Owen Strand's book, Risky Gospel, he calls this the narcissistic optimistic deism. It, that is that I can do whatever I want, many people think, and God exists to make all my dreams come true. This perspective has influenced how people view their body. The body is not made by God for his glory in this view. It's a blank state upon which we may draw any identity, any expression that we choose. We use it, we abuse it, we do it with it, whatever we want. This is a neo-pagan idea. And yet the Bible shows us something much different and much better. Our manhood or womanhood is not incidental. 
It has been given us by God as a gift. When we inhabit our God-created bodies as a vessel of delight, temples of the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.19, our sexuality points to what theologians call complementarity. Men and women are one of a kind, as 1 Corinthians 15.39 says, but we are not the same. This is true in several respects, as scripture indicates and common sense shows, men and women are different anatomically. Adam named his wife woman because she was distinct from him, a man, as Genesis 2.23 says. Only a man can provide the raw material by which to procreate. Only a woman can bear children and nurse them. Non-Christian scientists have recognized the bodily differences of the sexes. Annie and Bill Moore, for example, note that men have on average 10 times more testosterone than women. Studies show that women use a vocabulary that is different enough for men's to be statistically significant. We are distinct emotionally. The scriptures give voice to this reality when we call godly husbands to treat their wives as a weaker vessel and challenge fathers not to provoke their children in 1 Peter 3, 7 and Colossians 3, 19. These and other patterns constitute the the markers of our manhood and womanhood. Our differences are clear and they are considerable. And they're also God-given. We complement one another. This owes to God's original design. God created Adam, but there was not a helper fit for him, as we see in Genesis 2.18. And so the Lord, in his kindness and wisdom, made Eve. She instantly delighted Adam when brought to him. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she cried out in Genesis 2.23. Her womanhood did not escape Adam. It captivated him. Satan has always been trying to usurp the created order. He took the form of a serpent to entice the man and the woman in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Adam was called to exercise dominion over animals, and yet an animal mastered him in the fall. Adam was the head of his wife, but he relinquished his headship when he allowed Satan to tempt his wife and when he let his wife lead him to eat the forbidden fruit. While she was duped about the consequences of her rebellion, she knowingly led her husband into the sin of disobedience. This is a portrait of her rejection of God. The Lord indicted Adam for his failure to lead Eve by asking, where are you? Indicating that Adam had responsibility to spiritually protect his wife. He failed in that task, paving the way for Eve to disobey God. Adam's failure led to Eve's and both of them were held guilty by the Lord. The just curse he pronounced on their humanity had spiritual and even physical consequences. Both of them lost eternal life and brought the judgment of eternal death on the human race. Their bodies given to them to glorify God would now bar the marks of fallenness in gender-specific ways. Adam's work of provision was cursed as the ground would now fight him as he worked. Eve's childbearing was cursed as what was meant to be a beautiful process became a painful, even a life-threatening one. The sexes were put in competition, and Eve, the Lord said, would now have a desire for her husband. This word is also used in Genesis 4-7, where God tells Cain that sin's desire is for him, which means that evil is seeking to master and even rule over him. And so the women will now seek to lead and dominate her husband. And when we listen to Satan, pain and, and sin follow, and the gender roles laid out for us in Scripture are undermined and even attacked. We see this profound tension between God's design and Satan's attack on that design. We see the profound tension in this way that the Lord created man and woman and gives them specific roles to play for his glory. Satan targets man and women and induces them to up 
and God's design. God orders and even structures, and Satan tears down that structure or aims to tear down that structure. And yet the Lord brings life. Satan destroys that. These tragic patterns are as old as the earth. They are not new, but they morph with the times. Western culture is making good on this rebellion. It denies the distinctiveness of the divine creation. It tears down the uniqueness of the sexes. It rebels against the lordship of Jesus. The wisdom and the design of God is rejected, and the word of God in some is reviled. In fact, over the last 50 years, American Christians have watched as our society has fashioned a brave new order for itself. Feminism and the sexual revolution have transformed the American home. Many men have lost any sense of responsibility in the home. They, they've turned, tuned out. They're, they're passive. They're self-focused. Many women feel a great tension between their career and the home. They're told they're secu by secular lifestyle magazines to pursue a perfect work-life balance, but it's hard to find. Increasingly, the sexes are in competition. These troubling developments present phase one of the transformation of men and women. Phase two is the spread of the, as we've seen, of the homosexual movement. Led by celebrities in the 1980s, the homosexual movement built off the momentum of the feminist push and even the sexual revolution. It sought to mainstream homosexual behavior. Men and women, it assumed, were not different in any meaningful way. The moral constraints of the biblical worldview had already been cast off. Romantic love was not subject to any shape or any design. It's just a feeling. As such, it had no duties, no covenantal dimensions, and no enduring commitment. If it, it, it persisted, great. If the feelings of love died out, then the relationship died with it. In phase one, gender roles were recast. In phase two, romantic love was recast. In phase three, the body itself was recast. Transgender ideology is grounded in the idea that the body isn't an essential part of our being, a viewpoint known as existentialism. Our gender identity is fluid, a social contract that can change. We may well be a man trapped in a woman's body. For example, our identity does not necessarily match our body. In such instances, many transgender people opt for reconstructive surgery so their identity fits with their body, an existential view, ironically. And yet the trend is building momentum. We've seen with the show Transparent, uh, it received, when it came out, prominent placement on Amazon Prime with the leading character embracing transgender identity. Minnesota high schools took action at the end of 2014 to allow transgender children to play on either boys or girls sports team, whichever they wanted. In Maine and California, students identifying as transgender can use whatever bathrooms they desire, even in Idaho as well, in other states as well now. Celebrities promote this viewpoint in their homes with leading film stars Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie publicly encouraging their daughter Shiloh to call herself John and dress up in boys' clothes. The new way to approach the body is to see it as an art project, a means of self-expression rather than as the creation of the divine mind and a means of God glorification. And so it should be clear to Christians that this latest phase of our culture shift away from the Judeo-Christian worldview is a major one. We're witnessing the undoing of the basic realities of God's created order. What should we do? Here's four responses. First, we need to recognize that we're witnessing moral anarchy as Western nations abandon all semblance of biblical authority. There is nothing more essential to our lives than our manhood and womanhood. Our culture is embracing transgender identity and thus uprooting the very structure of our bodily existence. To reject this reality is to embrace chaos. That's what we're seeing in our society today. 
untold numbers of boys and girls will be harmed by doing so. More significantly, God is not honored or even obeyed. The rates of suicide among transgender people show the brokenness this choice causes. Philip McCube, former Johns Hopkins University psychiatrist in chief, has noted in the Wall Street Journal that suicide rate amongst transgender individuals is 20 times higher than in the normal population. Embracing transgender identity at even a cultural level does not produce happiness and wholeness. It goes hand in hand with personal confusion and disorder. Second, we should embrace the beauty of God's creative design. The Christian church and the godly family should be a festival of happiness. We should rejoice that God in his sovereign wisdom has opened our, our eyes to see that he made us according to his per perfect design. Manhood and women at our plan B, God has made us as we are. We are the pinnacle of the creation. A visceral response to sin must never quiet our instinct to show mercy to lost people. God's creative work is undermined across the board today. For even in evangelical settings, it is increasingly acceptable to teach that humanity isn't even that special. Adam and Eve were literally, weren't literally the first man and woman, but merely were selected from a group of homeoids to represent humanity. The Bible speaks a better word than this in Hebrews 2.24. And so a sectoralizing, a darkening world that seeks to demystify the human body. And yet God in his word dignified it. It showed us that our bodies were not made for utility, but for worship. Christians celebrate the beauty of the body and of manhood and womanhood, where we see that we owe our form to divine design. Third, we should recommit ourselves to training our children. The bodily differences between men and women are real. They speak to differences in our makeup, specifically designed by our creator. And in practical forms, we must teach these differences to our children. They must see that being a boy or a girl is a matter of God's glory. There should be no shame in boys liking uh, boyish things or in girls adopting girlish behaviors. Christians should encourage this kind of awareness. Many parents will find that their children generally enjoy being a boy or a girl, a future man or a future woman. We should regularly remind our kids that it was God who made them as they are. We should encourage them to embrace and assume manhood if they are a boy and womanhood if they are a girl. And when we do so, we're imitating the pattern of wise biblical parents. Be strong, David said to his son Solomon, and prove yourself a man in 1 Kings 2.22. Parents cannot guarantee the godliness of their children. That's not what I'm saying. And yet Solomon clearly chose to exhibit his manhood in sinful ways. But we can shepherd our children and exalt the goodness of manhood and womanhood. If we do not teach our kids about gender and sexuality, we can be assured that our unbiblical culture will. And they are. The cultural makers who disobey the scripture are persuasive, they're forceful, and they're eager to indoctrinate our children's. And so fathers and mothers must recommit themselves to training their children in the scriptural, biblical worldview so that children do not embrace the cultural one. Fourth, we should reach out in compassion and we should call for repentance. We must reach out to those cursed by Adam's fall just as we were. We may feel a visceral response to sin and its effects, but our response must never quiet our instinct to show mercy to lost people. Transgender individuals will be increasingly common in our neighborhoods and even in our communities. We have a choice. We can simply avoid them, or we can reach out to them in kindness and conviction and evangelize them. 
conversion for transgender individuals will not be neat and clean. It'll be messy. It will involve the recognition that sin is corrupted in every fiber of our being, as Isaiah 64, 6 says. But the gospel is stronger than sin. Christ's death washes us clean. And Christ's resurrection gives us life. The resurrection raised Christ's spirit even as it renewed his body. Pastors should preach on the implications of the resurrection for all people, including transgender ones. Coming to faith has profound implications for our bodies. For people who have embraced a transgender identity, repentance will mean embracing their God-given gender and rejecting whatever sinful identity they have chosen. The talking animals of Walt Disney films and pop culture have charmed many of us. But a Disneyified concept of narcissistic self-determination has done us no favors. The culture has offered us a false gospel, one that approves of all we do, leaving us to pursue anything we desire. And the scriptural gospel is much better. It makes sense of our humanity. It restores our identity. It calls us to be men and women who see our body as a gift, a vessel by which we may give glory to our maker and redeemer. And this may sound too good to be true, but the church exists to make one thing clear. This is no fairy tale. It is the message of scripture and the hope of us all. You know, there, there's a lot that's been said today, and there's still a lot more to be said about this. I'm excited for you to hear in the next two episodes from a woman who the Lord has saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And this, this lady over the next two episodes is going to help us understand even more about this movement, about how behind it is a view of worship, a view of life, a false theology of the body, of the gospel, and of the hope that we have. And so I'm excited about that. And I hope that this episode has been helpful for you in, in showing you the, the opposing view uh, on how transgender opposes the biblical worldview and that it has equipped you to think and to speak on this matter. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.